0: Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham and another member of our team, Andrew, the spicy one, Warwick. Um, it, we got that from a provisionist perspective. He's been dubbed as a spicy one, so that's where we're going with. Um, but today we're going to be going through uh, continuing our refutation of Idol Killer, also known as Warren McGrew, um, and we're going to be looking at his statement of faith today. Not all of it, but certain aspects of it that we think are important to discuss. Uh, but before we dive into that, I want to follow up on what we had, what I had posted earlier this week about us joining the Re- the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Uh, we're very excited to be part of this group. Um, it will give us a platform to be able to uh, continue to promote our show and uh, continue to spread the gospel and, and a reform doctrine. Um, and partner with other Reformed brothers um, as we continue this ministry. Um, So next week, Lord willing, we should be up next Wednesday. I think we'll be up on the site. Uh, We'll continue to come through our platforms here through uh, the live stream and through Anchor and those other platforms. um, But we will be officially platformed there. So uh, please check it out. It's at reformedpodcast.com. There's other podcasts on there to check out. Um, so definitely take a look at that. And with that, Sean, I'll hand it over to you to introduce our topic.
1: Yeah. So as Dan said, today we're going to be going through um, the idol killers uh, doctrinal statement. And um, the obvious question uh, I imagine some are asking is, why are we spending another week uh, talking about uh, Warren and going through his document, doctrinal statement? And ultimately, this, this stems from the previous week. As we were going through his um, article on Ephesians 2, something at least stood out very much to me there's a, a sentence in here when he's talking about Ephesians 2:8 actually I'll just read the paragraph uh, considering the grammar considering the grammar employed here in Ephesians 2:8 faith Pisteos is a feminine form whereas gift de, de, excuse me Doron is neuter. so the gift cannot in this context be a reference to faith. The way the passage is constructed requires that salvation Cecil's menoi, is the gift being referred to. Thus, the gift of salvation is by God's grace, charity, through our faith, our fidelity, pisteos. And that very much, when I was reading it, jumped out at me because faith and fidelity are not the same thing. He's saying we're saved through our faith, our fidelity, treating them as the same when they're not. And the, the Greek, underlying Greek word pistis can actually be translated faith or fidelity based on the context, but that shouldn't, that doesn't mean that in English faith and fidelity mean the same thing. Um, they don't um, just because it can be translated that way in English doesn't mean they should be equated. And that basically got us started down a path of, well, what does Warren actually believe when it comes to salvation? Cause that stood out as something very much wrong. Um, and, uh another reason we're we're bringing this up is Warren has been getting platformed by, for example, Layton Flowers last week and uh, or as we saw last week when we reviewed uh, the video with him on, and we wanted to make it known that uh we don't think this guy is a believer. Um he promotes a false or he has a false gospel. Mm-hmm. And uh we just wanted to put that warning out there. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, there's, there's no reason, uh, even if you disagree with us about Calvinism, we're dealing with something even more fundamental than that, as important as it is. This is the gospel here is at stake. Warren has a false gospel. He has a false view of the atonement, as we're going to see going forward. And uh, if you're a believer, you should not want to partner with this man or promote him to uh, people as a reliable teacher. This is a matter of life and death here. This is uh, we, we can't just treat it as a a light issue uh, and have him on because he shares our view on a pet topic here. And so since he's being promoted so much, this really needs to be be, uh, brought from the limelight. So that's what we hope to
0: do here. Yeah. And it's interesting, um, you know, Dr. Flowers and uh, Provisionist Perspective promoting these guys, uh, they would not be allowed, at least on paper, uh, to be even uh, in the same denomination together. Uh, simply because the Baptist faith and message confesses penal substitutionary atonement, uh, which Warren denies. So like our brothers have said here, these are core issues and they are promoting and partnering with this person who claims a different gospel. And that's dangerous. Um, And we're warned against that. We uh, we were just talking about this earlier. Second John, uh, the book of Jude, very careful that uh, we are to watch out for these people. We are to Jude, especially talks about, um, we are to save these people. We're to uh, share the gospel with these people. Uh, but we're also to be careful that we do not fall into the same false teaching. Uh, so it's warning with caution. It's, uh, it's review with caution. And so that's what we're going to be doing here today. Um, and so with that, we're going to dive right in. Um, and we're not going to be able to go through every single aspect of his confession, but some items that we deem critical. Um, and so we may go a little bit longer today. We'll see. Um, we'll see how far we get, but uh, we hope it's beneficial. So, as you can see on the screen, this is his statement of belief. What we believe, essentially, what you would call his confession of faith. Um, and we're going to start in paragraph four. We're going to start with man. Uh, now, we, Sean and I, touched on this last week, where we talked about Ephesians two, um, and especially Warren's use of it in his assertion that deadness and sin is not merely, or it doesn't include uh, spiritual death as in the same sense as physical death. It's only relationally speaking. And he went to Luke 15 using the parable of the prodigal son to try and prove his point. Um, And we talked about how that uh, does not work given Paul's argument in Ephesians 2. So I know there are those who do not, uh, who listen on audio. So I'll read um, the section here. We affirm that each person is created by God in an innocent state with good and godly appetites uh, and drives. Sin is born within the individual when they reject the will of God and choose evil, surrendering unto their appetites and letting them rule over them. So we'll stop there a second. So as we talked about last week, um, what Warren is implying is that man can be uh, in the same state As or unbelieving man could be in the same state as a believer. Because he says here that man, even before he's saved, just in his natural state, he is innocent. He has good and godly appetites. And we see this contradicting Ephesians 2, uh, where uh, Paul is contrasting our deadness and sin and being alive and unifying that spiritual life with Christ's resurrection. We've been raised with him. This is not only discussed in Ephesians chapter 2, but also Colossians 2 verses 11 through 15, where he says in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13 and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way nailed and nailed it, uh, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over it. So this spiritual life is tied directly to Christ's resurrection. And this is not merely a relational resurrection. This is a spiritual resurrection. Likening that to a physical resurrection from the dead, so we can't have good and godly appetites in the same way uh, that uh, that Warren is laying uh, out here. We don't. We don't have good and godly appetites. We're dead, and this is conflating categories. You're putting unbelievers in the same place as believers because believers do have good and godly appetites, but that's a result of salvation. We see this clearly in Romans eight one through eleven. Uh, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Uh, Stop right there a second. Um, Paul is grounding the actions of these people based on their spiritual condition. So the ones who are not condemned, they walk according to the spirit. They don't walk according to the flesh. And what is that condemnation? How is that condemnation removed? Well, he dealt with that in chapters three and four specifically through faith and through the righteousness imputed from Christ. We receive the righteousness by faith alone. We are no longer condemned, and therefore we walk according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it cannot subject to the law. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then in verse nine, Paul contrasts the believer state with the unbeliever state says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So this is a contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. The believer lives with godly desires, albeit not perfectly. And we'll talk a little bit about that later but he lives with godly desires, good and godly desires. He desires to please his Lord. He desires to please God now that he has been made new and is saved and has this new relationship with God. The unbeliever cannot please God because he is in the flesh. He cannot satisfy those requirements that God has required. So to say that an unbeliever has good and godly appetites naturally and is innocent is a simply conflate categories and clearly to contradict what Paul is stating here with regards to man's state. Um, So, uh, that's the first part uh, of the section we're talking about. And Andrew and Sean, feel free to pipe in if you have any thoughts. Not out here. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> All right. So continuing on, uh, he says that God does not will us to sin, nor does he cause us to sin. And this is found right here. God does not will us to sin, nor does he cause us to sin. Oh, we sin because we reject him. We affirm that sin is not hereditary or genetic. It is relational, a matter of the heart and born from our disobedience. Thus, we go astray from our original state and intended purpose. Uh, We see the corruptive influence and consequences of sin and suffering and death throughout the world. Uh, This is not God's will, as Jesus prayed in the Lord's prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he says, first of all, that God does not will us to sin. Um, Now, if you mean simply by that God does not prescribe it. Fine. We would agree with that. Um, but I don't think that's all that he has in mind here. God does not will us to sin. Uh, we do believe that God has a decree and Warren and uh, his followers would obviously deny that, uh, but God does have a decree and even good things and bad things that happen uh, are decreed by God. We see this very clearly um, in Lamentations three thirty-seven to 38. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it or as the NIV says, decreed it. uh, Is it not from the mouth of the most high that woe and well-being proceed? So everything that happens, even the good things and the bad things have been decreed by God. This is, it's not like God only decrees the good things and then just lets the bad things happen. These are a result of God's decree. Um, And even uh, what he says about God, not causing us to sin. uh, There is a sense where God does cause us to sin. We don't have, the ability to move or exist apart from God. We see this in Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your poets have said, for we are his offspring. And this was Paul uh, in uh, preaching to unbelievers. Uh, but we live and we move in him. If we can move on our own apart from him, then we're no longer in him, are we? Um, and we see this also in Isaiah 10 with the Assyrians. God said the Assyrians were going to come and, and judge Israel. Israel. But God said that he was the one who was going to cause it to happen and then turn right around and hold them accountable for their actions. Uh, This is in verses 12 through 15. Uh, Therefore, it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria in the glory of his haughty looks. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also, I have removed the boundaries of the people, and I have robbed their treasuries. So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand is found like a nest, uh, the riches of the people. And as one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth. And there was no one who moved his wing, nor opened his mouth with even a peep. And then God's response in verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him who chops it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it as if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood. So God is employing sarcasm here to make a point, right? So he's saying, you guys think that you did this on your own? No, I caused you to do it, but I'm holding you accountable for the desires of your heart. Now I know that uh, those who disagree with uh, our interpretation of this would say that that means that God causes sin in, in the sense that he is responsible for it. Uh, we would deny that categorically and we've dealt with this previously. Um, and I think on our blog, um, as well as in previous, uh, episodes. So I'd encourage you to go and look at that, but uh, on its face, that's what we find in the scriptures. Um, and so when he says that God does not cause us to sin, uh, that opens a door for many implications, but the Bible clearly teaches that it's not the case. Um, with regards to God uh, moving uh, his creation now with regards to inheriting sin. So he talks about sin is not hereditary or genetic. It is relational. So we would deny that sin is genetic. It's not that sin, that our genetics are inherently sinful or that the creation is inherently sinful. It's a spiritual condition that we inherit from Adam. Uh, We see this in Romans chapter five uh, in multiple places, but particularly 18 and 19. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. First Corinthians 15:20 20 through 22. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who had, have fallen asleep. For since by man came death. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So we see this representation, and this is what we call federal headship, where sin or the, the actions of the federal head are imputed to directly to the offspring. And this is how God deals in covenant relationship with uh, his creation. Uh, and this is how he dealt with Adam through a covenant of works. And so Adam's Adam's actions were imputed to us. That's why death can be imputed to us because the actions of Adam were imputed. God would be unjust if he simply imputed death, but didn't do so on the basis of anything, right? Then God would be unjust. We'd be dead in Adam for no reason whatsoever. It would just be arbitrary. Um, But we have a reason. It's because of sin. One man's uh, disobedience, many were made sinners. And so Uh, We die because of our sin. We die because of that sin that was brought into the world. It's very important to realize. So it's not genetic. It's not hereditary uh, from a physical standpoint, but we do get it from Adam um, uh, as we are born into this world. And then one more note on this section. Um, He quotes Psalm 22, 9 through 10. It's one of his proof texts. Um, He says, but uh, you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You have been my God. And he tries to use this to show man's innocence from birth. Um, But Psalm 51 5, which is David's famous confession, a Psalm in his repentance of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So David was very aware of his sin um, In this passage in Psalm 22, he's not saying that he was somehow innocent at birth as if uh, he was not sinful and became sinful later on. He makes it very clear that even from the time he was conceived, he was sinful, and this was a condition that he was in. So I want to in, point that out in passage.
2: And who's uh, Psalm 22 uh, prophesying about, too? This is prophesying Christ. Christ quo- quotes this at his crucifixion as being applied <laughs> to him. This isn't just and a generic man talking here. And as somebody like Warren, who who likes to talk about uh, the early church fathers so much, the pre-Augustinian early church fathers, none of them would p- interpret that passage about generic man. All of them would interpret that as being messianic and uh, pointing to Christ. And we're actually going to see a little bit of more of that later, but I wanted to point that out there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, more cherry picking of verses, more cherry picking verses. All right, going on to paragraph six. So he lays out who man is in his condition. Uh, Then he starts talking about uh, who Christ is. Now, we're not going to read this uh, entire passage, but I want to talk about something that we are going to bring out in much more detail later. This is regarding the atonement. Um, When Warren talks about sacrifice as it relates to Christ's death, he's not talking about penal substitution in the sense that um, Christ took on the punishment our sins deserve in our place basically a vicarious sacrifice uh, penally or forensically. He denies that and we're going to see that later. Um, But so when he's talking about sacrifice, we need to understand what he means by that. Uh, There's no satisfaction of the wrath of God. There's no dealing with sins um, implications. It's all based on, um, some other views or view. I think he leans towards the ransom view primarily. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ransom
2: priestess yeah. Victor. Yeah, he makes it explicitly clear. He rejects all forms of satisfaction models of the atonement where, where Christ is actually appeasing the wrath of God, satisfying justice at the cross. And uh, that's a big problem because that's the gospel. That's what Paul starts out with in first Corinthians 15, when he's defining the gospel for that Christ yeah. died for our sins and if you look what Paul wrote other uh, in other places, as we will, that's what he meant by it. He means he actually took on the our sins and and uh, bore the wrath of God uh, for those sins on our behalf. And we'll, we'll we'll draw all that out later when we get to uh, to that section of this.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And and uh, Derek, I see you asked, how does he explain propitiation? Well, t- as we get to his what we will call his essential section near the end, we'll bring that out further and further detail. Um, But yeah, like you say, Andrew, this is what Paul lays out clearly in first Corinthians 15. We see this in Romans three and Paul, essentially the first three, maybe four chapters of Romans are really laying out what the gospel is. Mm -hmm. And so God lays out what his, what it means that God was just in bringing Christ forward. And that these are, this is all forensic language having to do with, uh, God's tribunal, his law, his justice system, so to speak. So we'll get into that later. Uh, But I want to lay out what he means by sacrifice. It's not the same thing that we mean by sacrifice. All right. Paragraph seven. Paragraph seven. He says, We affirm that the wicked and unrighteous can be forgiven and reconciled unto God, provided they abandon their ways and return to God who will freely pardon them. We affirm salvation eternal life is a hope yet to be reaped in the age to come. Now, that's key. Um, mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in a second, but yet to be reaped in the age to come for those who faithfully endure to the end. Men can only be saved through the work of Jesus Christ, through repentance of sin, confessing his Lord and by faithfully remaining in him. The believer abides in Christ and is considered righteous, born again by the Holy spirit turned from sin and assured of a physical resurrection from the grave, provided they do not fall away and turn from faithfulness. We are to Mm. be holy and sinless, yet if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And I highlighted some specific places in here. Um, He talks about salvation being, or I'm sorry, uh, it's a hope yet to be reaped in the age to come. I want to talk about that first. So essentially, uh, eternal life is not something that we have now. It's not something that we have now. It's something that will come later on only if we do something to keep uh, our position to obtain it. And he does add, you know, we, we're saved through the work of Christ, the repentance of sin, confessing he is Lord. But at the end of the day, it's ultimately by faithfully remaining in him. And this is a gospel issue. This is not, you know, a third tier issue. We can just go, okay, you know, Warren, whatever. Uh, no, this is, this has to do with our salvation. If we're saying that what we do is going to ultimately get us there and that we don't even have eternal life now, it's something that we must get at the end. Now we're, we're twisting the gospel. We're turning it on its head. It's no longer through faith alone, which is a gift of God in the first place and not of ourselves. Um, we have to somehow meet a standard of what faithfulness is in order to uh, get there which is a problem. Um, and I have no clue what that standard would be. He doesn't say nope. what that is here. I um, don't
2: find it in scripture either. It's like, how no. do I know that I've done enough, uh, done enough works here. And I've, I've exactly. met the criteria of faithfulness. There's nothing but fear and trembling with this, this view. There's no uh, assurance. You can't know you have eternal life. As John says, notice that language by this, you may know you have eternal life. He says, you can know that you have it now. Paul goes as far as to say that we're sitting on the right hand of the Father in Christ
1: now in Colossians. Right,
2: like, he's speaking but this with is such all surety. Future for him, mm-hmm. yeah. For for Warren, it's all future.
1: Yeah. The verse I wanted to bring out was John five twenty four. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting mm-hmm. life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Notice all those present tenses there. It's not something that is is to our future only. Mm -hmm. It's it's something we have now by faith. There
2: is therefore now no condemnation for those
1: who are in Christ
2: Jesus. Now, if you're in Christ now, there's no condemnation. And nothing can separate you for the love of God, as Paul goes on to say in that same chapter. Uh, because it's not we who hold ourselves, but Christ who holds us. Like all who who the Father gives unto Him, He will lose none of them. But He He has a, He has us in His hands and is carrying us to the cross. He He bought us uh, with a price, and He's not about to let His uh, His bride go.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and Smart Christian Channel said here, doesn't John six say we have eternal life, which is a present? Active participle, meaning we have it now into the future. So it does say that we have eternal life and actually have uh, John six forty seven here. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. It's present tense. You see this in John chapter three, verse 36. He who believes in the son has eternal life. And he who does not believe in the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So there's this present tense language. You're believing now. You have eternal life now. It's not something that's going to be in the future. And he's essentially saying here that um, as well, that you can fall away. He says clearly uh, in assured of a physical resurrection from the grave, provided they do not fall away and turn from faithfulness. So he does not believe in any kind of eternal security. He denies that. That's very clear, um, which Jesus himself would deny John 10, 30, uh, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. So there's no way that we're going to fall away if we truly believe in Christ. One, because we're no longer condemned. Our debt has been paid. Our uh our account has been imputed with Christ's righteousness. Romans three makes us uh, very clear with regards to the righteousness of God being revealed and brought on by faith. And then second Corinthians five, we've become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. You know, if we're, if Paul is saying that we don't have condemnation right now, and yet you're saying that we can fall away and therefore receive the punishment or the condemnation. So God is just arbitrarily changing his mind about his people. God is now unjust Because he is punishing, um, he's bringing out punishment upon those who have believed and received that promise. Um, So, And the scripture is made void in Romans Mm 8.1. There would be condemnation upon those who are in Christ Jesus at some point. But there is no condemnation. We have been made right with God. Once you're made right with God, there is no backtracking. There is no change in that. You are secure until the end. And uh, this is the power that Jesus has. He is, no one can snatch him out of my hand. Why? Because he's, uh, be- they've been given to him by the Father, uh, and Christ is God, and he will accomplish all that he promises. God cannot lie. Mm-hmm. God cannot change, and he will bring about his uh, salvific plan and bring us to the end. We're not, we have that assurance, and what a great hope that is for us as Christians. Mm-hmm. We have assurance that Jesus Christ, in his work, finished it, and he will make sure we get to the end in spite of ourselves, because we fail. Now, I'm not... I, I sin every single day, and we'll talk about this here soon with regards to uh, practicing sin and things like that. Um, but we sin every day, even as Christians. Uh, but we have been made right, and we can appeal to the Father and 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 believe in that gospel continuously and rest in it for as our only hope. And that uh, that standing before God is going to get us uh, to the end, and Christ will keep us. And Warren, what a miserable life that must be! To, to not have any kind of assurance of salvation. You have no clue what kind of faithfulness you have to keep. You have no clue what standard that is going to mean. And you don't know until the day you die whether or not you will get into heaven because it depends on you. What if you are on your deathbed and you just slip? And then are you going to be cast into all eternally? You've been faithful up until, this, up until you die. Um, and this is a problem that Catholics have as well. You know, they, it's it's grace and faith plus something else. At the end of the day, they don't have a hope to rest in. Um, so, you know, we're calling you, especially here, but all those who are resting in their faithfulness as the end-all be-all to repent and believe in the true gospel of Christ. Christ died for our sins. He died and rose again on the third day, paid for all of our sins, all of those to whom the Father gave him. And if we believe in that gospel, that that precious um, work that he did by faith, we will be saved. And that is our rest. That is our hope. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. Nothing else. So, mm-hmm. um, this is, you know, we get, I get fired up talking about these things yeah. because it, this is, this goes to the heart is our of our life. This is, this our, is hope. our
2: life. This is, this is the, the only reason we have to live is because Christ died for us and we're assured of the pardon we have before the Father. But people with a, a man-centered idea of salvation, they can't accept these things because they are determined that it's not God ultimately who's, who's saving his people, but that they have to save themselves. They have to, they have to will themselves to to uh, earn their salvation. Fortunately, with many Armenians, they'll be blessedly inconsistent, and they'll believe that somehow uh, Christ died for their sin completely and that uh, that was a work of God and that they won't fall away from his hands yet at the same time they affirm that they have an autonomous free will so i don't know how they they know that they won't fall away from his hands but um yeah. but uh yeah. but that's Dynamic this is where it leads to right? this is where it <laughs> leads to if you're consistent i truly believe that this is where it leads to because uh god is not acting in any special way to assure his believers of salvation or or that people will be saved it's just all comes from uh from themselves and uh yeah i think this is the logical result of it so uh, yeah, But yes, it's, it's, it's a complete – it ends up in a complete denial of the gospel. As I said, thankfully, a lot of our minds aren't there because they haven't pushed through those those um, right. logical conclusions. But this is where you can end up for sure.
0: Yep. And um, a Christ-centered perspective asks, uh, can you give a definition for condemnation in Romans 8.1? In what sense is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? So when we say there's no condemnation, we're talking about uh, before the tribunal of God, before God's law. The law condemns, uh, particularly through death, uh, you know, the soul that's Ezekiel says, the soul that sins shall die. Uh, Romans says that um, for all sin and fallen short of the glory of God for the wages of sin is death. So the condemnation is God's wrath upon us. Um, but if we are in Christ, we have received his righteousness and Christ has taken on our sin and we are accredited as having kept the law perfectly, both in the active obedience of keeping God's law and in keeping the punishment through Christ's death. Those of those things are imputed to us. And so we are no longer condemned. God can justly treat us as if we had not sinned and be brought into his presence. That's what we mean by um, condemnation. That's a good question. All right. So now, uh, or Sean and Andrew, do you have
1: anything else you want to add? Um, in terms of the, uh, why is he harping on the faithfully remaining on him? I suspect it's a misreading of the verses that essentially say, um, he who endures to the end will be saved. Obviously, we do believe that's true, that he who endures to the end will be saved, but not as some sort of prerequisite that God has put in place, but more of a description of that is the person who, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Mm-hmm. It's not that that has become a qualification in order to obtain salvation or be right with God, really, is what I should say. It's not, that's not a, a qualification to be right with God. That's um, something that uh, is descriptive of the believer. He who endures the end will be saved.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the God who monergistically saved us is able to monergistically sanctify us and keep us in the path of right living. And again, I I do think this is is the result of his synergism being logically uh, worked out because if the scripture says that only those who endure to the end will be saved, but we have autonomous free will that God has no part in, There's nothing to stop somebody who, after they profess faith in Christ, from actually falling away. So what do you do with those verses? Uh, We're able to reconcile them because we have a biblically consistent soteriology uh, where we recognize that God is responsible even for our own agency, and he's able to give us new desires and ensure that we walk in them. Uh, But for someone who doesn't have that, you can logically end up in this problem. Unless God, by his grace, keeps um, you from falling into
0: this problem. Yeah, uh, you know, versus like, he who began a good work in you will finish it. Make no sense if you simply have the libertarian free will to do whatever you want outside of God causing you to do it um, directly. And we make a distinction just because God causes us to walk in the way does not mean we don't have agency. Uh, The reformers were careful, uh, particularly the Westminster divines and the uh, particular Baptists were careful to distinguish between primary and secondary causes but God is working in us to bring about his end, which is his glory ultimately and in our glorification because that hasn't happened yet. Um, Yeah, that's, that's right. uh, Derek, he is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who gave us that faith and he will make sure it happens to the end. And again, this is a glorious thing that we can rest in. In spite of our failures, God will ensure that we get to the end and we will see him. And that makes me want to jump up and down and, and you know, it just makes me very excited because <laughs> it's it's uh, it's such a glorious truth that they are denying. You know, it you're denying yourself so much peace and joy uh, by following after these garbage teachings, and that's what they are—the foolishness, garbage, un- anti-biblical. Um, yeah, you're you're just denying yourself so much joy in believing in the true gospel and resting in Christ to bring you to the end. Amen. We have that hope
2: righty
0: all right so moving on to the essential section and this this was near the end of his um, his statement of belief or his confession of faith um, it's really where he brings out I think the most meat in terms of what he believes particularly on the atonement so we're gonna fo- we're gonna kind of zero in on that because uh, that is a very critical topic we need to talk about so I'll read this section here and then we'll discuss. Says, we reject the penal substitution view of the atonement as it uses selective scriptures to paint God as incapable of forgiveness or relenting in his wrath. Further, it creates division between the Father and the Son, whereas scripture is clear God was unified in purpose. Christ did not save us from the Father, but reconciled us to him, saving us from our sin, Satan, and the grave. Christ did not literally become sinful but carried our sin and its consequences to the cross. All the while he was holy and innocent, thus a perfect sacrifice. Jesus went to paradise along with the thief on the cross, not to the lake of fire, which we would agree with, by the way. Uh, the father and son are not and have never been at odds, but are unified in purpose. Jesus did not save us from the father who has always freely pardoned the repentant. Rather, he is, he was sent by the father to save us from our weakness and appetites, sin, infirmity, Satan, In the grave. Um, So to start off here, he uh, he says that to abide or hold to the penal substitution view of the atonement would essentially limit God. He says uh, it uses selective scriptures to paint God as incapable of forgiveness or relenting in His wrath. So basically, we're infringing upon God's omnipotence if we hold to a view uh, of the atonement in terms of the penal substitutionary atonement. And this is a this is a false view of what omnipotence is. When we say that God cannot do something, it doesn't mean that he uh has the potential to do something more than he actually is. It's that he's perfect in every single way that it's an impossibility for him to do it. Mm-hmm. Um and so really using the word cannot or is not able is not at, I guess um accurately reflecting what is going on, but it's the best way in our human language that we can discuss that. Um, Sam Renahan in his book, Deity and Decree on pages 72 and 73 talks about this specifically. And he says, quote, the scriptures say that God cannot sin, lie, be deceived or deny himself. And yet God is omnipotent. In fact, God cannot do such things precisely because he is omnipotent. If God could be deceived or deny himself, he would not be able to do all his holy will and would therefore be imperfect and not God. The many things that God cannot do demonstrate not weakness in God, but a perfection of power and complete and sovereign liberty who can resist him and prevail, who can oppose him and succeed End quote. So his perfection of being is such that it is impossible for him not to lie. It is impossible for him to deny himself. It is impossible for him to not do things outside of his nature. So uh, taking that uh, in mind and going back to what Warren is saying here, when we say that God is not capable of forgiveness or relenting in his wrath um, outside of dealing with his, uh, the requirements of his law, we're not saying that God has some sort of uh, incapacity. What we are saying is God is just and he must take care of the requirements of his law. He must satisfy those requirements, both the active obedience aspect of it, obeying you know the Ten Commandments and all that is required within the law, and the passive aspect, the punishment of it, which is death. So that's why we need a sacrifice. That's why we need somebody to keep the law perfectly and have those things accredited to us, because God is just and he requires perfection. So we have to be very careful when we talk about God's incapacity, um, and especially as it relates to the atonement. This is a very weak argument. Notice there's no... These selective scriptures are not noted, nor are they expounded upon or exegeted. They're just, it's just asserted. They use selective scriptures. There's nothing here that actually deals with that. Um, so this is a very weak argument um, as it relates to why penal substitutionary atonement is bad. Um, but we do see uh, the necessary that God, that God cannot um, arbitrarily forgive sin or relent in his wrath. I think a perfect example of this is in Isaiah 6. I'm going to read this real quick. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken up with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. So this is a vision that Isaiah has, right? He sees God on his throne um, and he's... Immediately aware of his sin. He doesn't feel comfortable. He doesn't go, okay, you know, uh, you know, I'm just feeling at ease here. He knows immediately he's in the presence of holiness, he's in the presence of perfection, and he calls a curse upon himself. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He calls essentially uh covenant curses upon himself. Um, and God doesn't come up to Isaiah and say, you know, Isaiah stop being so hard on yourself. It's okay. You know, I I got you. I got you. You're fine. Just get up and and stop crying about your sin. Come on. He doesn't do that. The angel go, the seraphim goes over to him and has to deal with his sin. That sin doesn't just disappear because Isaiah is selected by God to be a prophet. The sin has to be dealt with. And so that is done here uh, in this vision by touching the coal to his lips His sin is purged, his iniquity is taken away. He's standing in the presence of God, and God cannot allow that which is evil into his presence. No man can see God and live. And we know this is a vision. Isaiah would have died if he literally saw God. Um, But the principle is there. God is holy, and he requires holiness to be in his presence. So God cannot just relent in his wrath or just arbitrarily forgive sin. He has to deal with it. Um, And this is tied directly to his holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. He is perfect, and sin must be dealt with if we are to be in his presence. It cannot be an arbitrary forgiveness. It cannot be an arbitrary relenting of wrath. It has to be on the basis of something uh, as it comes to our salvation.
2: Yeah, Notice how it comes from the altar, too. It's connected to the sacrifice. It's pointing to the sacrifice of Christ that would purge our sin and allow us to stand in the presence of God. And I just wanted to say real quick, when when you're dealing with uh, uh, the incapacity of God, uh, when you were saying that, I was thinking, the only thing God's incapable of is he's incapable of not being perfect. And that's why he must satisfy sin, because he's a perfectly just God. who hates sin, and he is the, the just judge of all the earth. He will do right, and he will punish iniquity. As Exodus says, he will by no means clear the guilty. And so that guilt has to be satisfied some, uh, somehow. And if you do not have a perfectly just God who cares about justice being satisfied, you do not have the biblical God. You have a false right. God. Yes. Our, the true God is a just God.
0: Amen. Amen. Yep, that's exactly right.
1: For um, additional selected scriptures to prove this point, uh, Hebrews 9, uh, verses 21 and 22. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. So we see here that um, the blood of, without the shedding of blood, the the shedding of Jesus' blood, there is no remission of sins. There is no forgiveness. We would not be able to say that. Oh, God can just forgive arbitrarily. He needs to have or we need the shedding of blood for that remission of sin. Um, and that's, I think, what ultimately is, is being missed here when you say God is able to forgive uh, just just because, essentially, just by repenting. No, it's not merely our repentance that produces the forgiveness of sin. It's repentance and that being through faith in Christ that we have uh, access to that, um, that uh, forgiveness. Uh, you'll note that this is actually tied to the Old Testament types and sacrifices when it says moreover he sprinkled blood both the tabernacle and the vessels of in the ministry. the um, All those sacrifices were ultimately unto God and they were prototyping uh, how forgiveness was to be accomplished. Um, we always see the sacrifice unto God um, and that that's necessary before there is uh, forgiveness of sin. Um, additionally, John three thirty six, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So this verse is teaching us that if you believe in the Son, not merely repent, but if you believe in the Son, you have everlasting life, and the wrath of God doesn't abide on you. But if you do not, it will continue to abide on you. The wrath of God is removed, by believing on the Son. Mm-hmm. It's not removed merely by repenting. Uh, apart from uh, belief in the Son. And that entails quite a bit more belief in who he was, his sacrifice, etc.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Christ is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament sacrifices. And if they were to God, then it stands to reason that Christ sacrifices to God. Mm-hmm. That's yeah a- exactly
0: exactly and i think this ties into to what he talks about uh he says god was unified in purpose um, and that somehow penal substitution creates a a division between the father and the son uh, as if they were not united in purpose uh we see this is uh really a very very weak argument we see this very clearly um in john 6 um verse 37 all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me i will by no means cast out for uh, verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the father who sent me that all he has given me. I should lose nothing, but you raise it up on the last day. Um, So, you know, this is part of raising up on the last day, carrying them there. Part of that is his sacrifice. You can't get there without the sacrifice. Um, That's what part of what he came to do. Uh, So they were unified in purpose. We see this Matthew 26, 39, Uh, He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He wanted to do his father's will. So they were unified in purpose uh, in bringing a particular people to to themselves. And that's very important to realize. So this doesn't create some sort of division between them in terms of purpose. Uh, We will see there is a turning away in terms of um, God turning his back on his son for a time while he poured out his wrath on him. Um, but that doesn't mean that their purpose changed. There was a free, freely laying down of the life of the son in perfect unity with the father's will. It's very clear. We see this, that uh, Jesus confesses this. Yeah.
1: Yeah, ultimately, um, I think it comes from a, a, I don't even know how to describe it, a misunderstanding of what we think is going on when we're saying that um, uh, Jesus' sacrifice removes wrath removes the wrath of God. Um, Because ultimately the Bible says that God sent his son into the world. The father sent the son for the purpose that his law would be satisfied uh, so that his wrath could be removed. We're not saying that, Oh God is just angry, helplessly angry. And we needed the son to come in uh, because the son really wanted to save, but the father didn't. No, no, no. The father did want to save, uh, but he would be unjust to do it any other way. Um, that's why ultimately in Romans three, the cross is seen, uh, so that God w- would be shown to be just and the justifier of the one yes. who has faith in Jesus. Amen. Because if there is no cross, if there is no sacrifice for sin, um, then, uh, the world can say to God, you're not just, you've just, you've just arbitrarily forgiven the sin. Mm-hmm. Um, that person murdered your loss is that person needs to die. Why are you just withholding it?
2: Yep. Yeah, and when we speak cuz I think he might be getting at the idea that if if Christ became sin for us like in the way that we say it, although I don't know how else you say Christ became sin if he wasn't actually bearing the sin of his of people on him, um he's thinking like, "Oh, we're making the Father and Son against each other in salvation." But we want to be clear that this is according to the human nature, not according to the divine nature of the Son. And you do see that uh that contrast again with Matthew 26:39. Uh, he says, not as I will, but as you will. So his human nature has its own will that's uh, distinct from his divine will, uh, which is in full accordance with uh, with God. And ultimately, his human nature perfectly submits to that uh, divine will and the will of the the Father. So when Christ came sin for us uh, and God viewed it as sin, it was according to his human nature, not that there's a disruption in the Trinity or, right. or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but, but he did, uh, he, he was forsaken on the cross according to his human nature. That's exactly what he says. Uh, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, did he, was he just saying that and not meaning it somehow? Like, no, he became sin for us. And, and since God hates sin, uh, his wrath had to be against him, uh, and that's exactly what romans three twenty five through twenty six uh was just saying um uh whom God sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare mm-hmm. his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare i say as John just quoted at this time his righteousness that he might be just in the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus that word propitiation it means wrath bearing substitute uh as as uh uh, Raymond says in his book, Paul, missionary theologian, uh, it has the basic meaning of a sacrifice, which turns away God's wrath and, and takes away sin. Um, and that understanding though, it's been challenged in the past by some, it's been vindicated through the study of that word in the Septuagint, uh, particularly the book of Maccabees, as well as in first Clement and the shepherd of Hermas to quote Leon Morris, uh, throughout Greek literature, biblical and non-biblical alike, uh, uh Elasmos, and that's how you say it, right? Elasmos, yeah, um, yeah, Sean's much better at Greek than I am, means propitiation. (laughs) We cannot now decide that we like another meaning better. It's simply what the word means. It it implies penal substitutionary atonement that Christ took uh, upon him the wrath of God. Uh, And I want to go to some other uh, scriptures on this. so the, the main one I want to look at is uh, Galatians 3, 10 to 13. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. In the law is not a faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Notice right there the contrast between do and faith. When when Warren makes faith to be faithfulness, he's making it something you do and continue to do, which is exactly what Paul is contrasting it with. The, the, that's, that's how Paul defines the law. The law is something that you do and, and you and you live in them. Uh, but to, to continue with the quotation: Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. The first thing we should ask is when he says he became a curse for us. What curse is he referring to? Well, he told us. He, he was quoting from Deuteronomy earlier when he said, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. And then explains that Christ is taking on this curse. So that's Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be him that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. Uh, but uh, the curse is more than a word. It's actually a uh, it's invoking something on somebody. That's what a curse is. Uh, and, and what is that thing? Uh, it's it's God's wrath poured out on the people. We see it in the very next chapter. After he goes through the blessings, he 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 repeats what he says before. But it shall come to pass if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Cursed shall thou be in the city, and cursed shall thou be in the field. Cursed shall be thy basket and thy store. He goes on to say, the Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke, in all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed, and until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me. So you see that it's the Lord who is the one who who uh invokes the curse and accomplishes the curse on people the curse is god's wrath it's the lord who sent cursing vexation and rebuke so if christ took upon him this curse he took upon him that wrath of god being poured out against him it's not the wrath of the devil as uh as Warren says the devil might have been a means whereby he accomplished it uh, in the same way that the devil was a means to provoke David to number Israel even though it was the Lord ultimately who who caused that to happen but it's the Lord's wrath it's the Lord's wrath that ultimately does that um it, it had to be against him because he became sin for us and God hates sin and his wrath is perpetually against sin um I'm gonna... Pause right there. Do you have any comments on that? Cause the next section is church history. So Otherwise, um, I just I'll just, I'll
0: just note, um, you know, in terms of God, the father actually uh, punishing the son or in a sense, in the sense that he was imputed for sin and took on that punishment. Um, Isaiah 53, 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see a seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So, you know, going back to this unity of the Son and the Father, Jesus came to do this, yet the Father, it pleased him to bruise him, in a sense, um, to because it accomplished his purposes. It satisfied his justice. It brought glory to his name. Um, so I just wanted to note that in passing.
2: Yeah, and Christ, Christ willingly laid down his life to do that. So the Amen. first, uh, I'm going to go through church history right now because Warren accused us. He actually accused me, even though I didn't. I didn't write the tweet of uh, of that. I condemned the whole of the ancient church by saying that people who deny penal substitutionary atonement uh, have the anathema of Galatians upon them. And I stand by that, uh, even though I didn't write the tweet. I would I would affirm that. Uh, but he's like, oh, you just condemned all of the early church, and I'm just going to show you that that's nonsense, real quick. We're going to start with Mathetes. All the way – by the way, all these are going to be pre-Augustinian because I know he doesn't trust anything Um, (laughs) post-Augustinian. So uh, the first one is Mathetis. It's in the early 2nd century, Um, uh, and I'm going to start with, but when our wickedness reached its height and it had been clearly shown – by the way, this is from uh, the researcher's library of ancient um, uh, texts following to the Apostolic Fathers. If anybody wants to see this, this is Mathetes' epistle to uh, to Diognetus. But when our wickedness had reached its height and it had been clearly shown that its reward, punishment, and death was impending over us, and when the time had come, which God had before appointed for manifesting his own kindness and power, how the one love of God through exceeding regard for men did not regard us with hatred nor thrust us away, nor remember our iniquity against us, but showed great long suffering and bore with us. He himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us. The holy one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only son of God? O oh, sweet exchange, O oh, unsearchable operation, O oh, benefits surpassing all expectation, that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one, and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. He calls it an exchange, his robes for mine, as the, uh, the, the popular hymn says, uh, it, he took on us the curse, he took, on, he took upon himself, excuse me, the, the curse, our sins, and our iniquity, and he imputes to us. His righteousness for the justification and redemption of many. So that was Mathetes, and we're going to turn to uh, Athanasius, uh, and I'll do a little bit more explaining for this one. So this is um, from his uh, first uh, uh, first book against uh, Apollinaris, and to give you some context, Apollinaris denied that Christ had a human soul. He only had a human body, but he had a, a divine soul, Um and Athanasius is speaking against this, and he uses the atonement as an example to uh, to prove how Apollinaris was wrong. And uh, this is what he says. So this is paragraph 19 of that first book. Uh, Vain then is your sophism, for how could his death have taken place if the word had not constituted for himself both our outward and our inward man? Uh, that is, body and soul, and how then did he pay a ransom for all, or how was the loosening of the grasp of death completely affected if Christ had not constituted for himself in a sinless state that which had sinned intellectually, the soul? In that case, death still reigns over the inward man, for over what did it ever reign if not over the soul which had sinned intellectually? As it is written, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, on behalf of which Christ laid down his own soul, thus paying a ransom. But what was it that God originally condemned, that which the fashioner fashioned or the action of that which was fashioned? If God condemned that which the fashioner fashioned, he condemned himself, and he would then be like to men. But if it is impious to think this of God, and if he condemned the action of the thing fashioned, in that case, he annuls the action and renews the things fashioned. For we are a thing of his making created unto good works. So uh, here we see that uh, – the. Um, <coughs> um, Athanasius, excuse me. Athanasius is telling us that uh, Christ had to take on a human soul so he could be a representative for souls that sinned. Uh, he he didn't just do it because uh, the soul is one of the things death has dominion over, and he needed to ex- overcome that so he could redeem humanity. Uh, he did do that, but it's 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 much more than that. Uh, what what he actually did is he took on his. Uh, um, he he took on the actions. That's what that's what uh, Athanasius is emphasizing here is the actions of the things that are fashioned. And remember, keeping this in context, he's he's rebuking rebuking um, of Apollinaris. He was saying basically that Christ just took on the body, uh, but he's saying, hey, it's not the body that sins, but principally it's the soul that sins, and the soul that sins it shall die. So Christ had to take that on. Um, but who's the ransom? Uh, who's the ransom for? Um. Uh, well, the implication is That it's to God Because it was God's condemnation That he was satisfying He said that the soul of sins shall die And that's made even more explicit In um, Athanasius' uh, uh, His his first treatise Against the Arians um, Paragraph uh, 6 in chapter 11 uh, Where he says That since then the word being the image Of the father and immortal Took the form of a servant And as a man underwent for us, death in his flesh, that thereby he might offer himself for us through death to the Father. It's not to the devil. It's to the Father. It's a sacrifice to the Father, taking on the sins of of his people. Um, so that's Athanasius, uh, and then I'm going to quote Eusebius as well. This is in uh, Book Ten, Chapter One of Demonstratio Evangelica. Uh, and he's showing the prophetic character of the Psalms and looking at Psalm 41 as an example, how it pointed to Christ. And I'm going to start at the part where he begins quoting 2 Corinthians 5 to whom though he knew no sin, God made sin for our sake, giving him a redemption for all that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But since being in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemns sin in the flesh, the words quoted are rightly used, and in that he made our sins in his own uh, from his love and benevolence towards us. He says these words, adding further on in the same psalm, thou hast protected me because of my innocence, clearly showing the impeccability of the Lamb of God. And how can he make our sins his own and be said to bear our iniquities except by our being regarding as his body, according to the apostle who says, now you're the body of Christ and severally members. And by that rule that if one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. So when the many members suffer and sin, he too, by the laws of sympathy, since the word of God was pleased to take the form of a slave and to be knit into the common tabernacle of us all, takes into himself the labors of the suffering members and makes our sickness his and suffers all our woes and labors by the laws of the love. And the Lamb of God not only did this, but was chastised on our behalf and suffered a penalty he did not owe, for but which he owed because of the multitude of our sins. And so he became the cause of the forgiveness of our sins because he received death for us and transferred to himself the scourging, the insults, and the dishonor which are due to us and drew down on himself the apportioned curse, being made a curse for us. And what is that but the price of our souls? And so the oracle says in our person, by his stripes we are healed, and the Lord delivered him for our sins, with the result that uniting himself to us and us to himself and appropriating our sufferings, he can say, I said, Lord, have mercy on me, hear my soul, heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. So notice that he actually... Uh, it's by merit of Christ taking us as as members of His body spiritually that He represents us in our sins at the cross and takes on the iniquities uh, of of our sins. And He, he Psalms he cites Psalm forty one three as Christ speaking prophetically through the psalmist saying that Christ so intimately bore our sins as his own that he could speak as if he himself had committed them despite never having sinned in his life. And that's why he quotes him as saying, um, heal my soul for I have sinned against thee. Christ never sinned, but since he was representing his people, uh, he could speak that way. Uh, that's how uh, Eusebius is quoting him. Um, and again, who is this uh, Who's this sacrifice for? He, Eusebius tells us in the introduction of the same book, where he describes Christ as the word of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the angel of great counsel and the great eternal high priest offering sacrifice for the existence and preservation of all and propitiating the father. And as human, we know him as the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And as the sheep led to the slaughter, and this was the human body, which as a high priest, he took like a lamb, our, our sheep from the flock of humanity and offering the first fruits of the human race, sacrifice them to the father. So this is absolutely satisfaction for our sins to the father, fulfilling those old Testament types. And I'll end this survey with just one more quote from uh, Hilary of Poitiers, if that's how you pronounce it, where he comments on Psalm 51 and I'll just read it without comment. Psalm 54. Psalm 54. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> For next there follows, I will sacrifice unto you freely. The sacrifice of the law, which consisted of wholeborn offerings and oblations of goats and of bulls, did not involve an expression of free will because the sentence of a curse was pronounced on all who broke the law. Whoever failed to sacrifice laid himself open to the curse. And it was always necessary to go through the whole sacrificial action because the addition of a curse to the commandment forbade any trifling with the obligation of offering. It was from this curse that our Lord Jesus Christ redeemed us. When, as the apostle says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Thus he offered himself to the death of the accursed that he might break the curse of the law, offering himself voluntarily as a victim to God the Father, in order that by means of a voluntary victim, the curse which attended the discontinuance of the regular victim might be removed. Now of this sacrifice mentioned is made of another passage of the Psalms. Sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body you have prepared for me. That is by offering to God the Father, who refused the legal sacrifices, the acceptable offering for the body which he received, of which offering the Holy Apostle thus speaks, for this he did once for all when he offered himself up, securing complete salvation for the human race by the offering of his holy, perfect victim. That's just a brief survey of some people before the 4th century, dealing with early 2nd century, um, and uh, three from the 4th century to show that this, this was very much present in the early church. Not necessarily all of them believed it, but to say that we anathematize the whole early church by saying penal substitution is, is uh, necessary to believe the gospel, um, we're not doing any such thing. We are not anathematizing the whole of the early church.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. And and that it, while we don't rest in, in, and I think that's a that's a pretty weak argument to use it. Like, you deny the Holy Church. You know, if if we did, fine. If that's what the Scriptures teach, they are not our authority. Amen. Um, so it's not it's not a very good argument. Um, although, as we've used here, the early church fathers can be very helpful as we are studying Scripture to see what men have done in working out these difficult truths.
1: Mm -hmm. That gets to your view of what the early church is. Sorry to take this on a brief side note, but uh, I I do think it's important uh, because ultimately you will find people in the early church, early church writers, I should say, that um, write on like they're all over the place in terms of, oh yeah, we really agree with that person. That person's sort of shaky and that person's just a downright heretic, right? And ultimately the reason why we have those writings surviving today and not others is because they were, it's a function of them being the most popular. Mm. And that is not always necessarily um, the, um, an indication that they're the best.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, obviously origin was extremely popular at the time. And we would say that he's, he's a heretic. Um, so, and God has not promised to us that we would know church or no truth by looking at church history. He's, promised us to, uh, we would know truth by looking into his word. So ultimately, when somebody makes an argument, the early church never believed X, well, A, I don't even know that, I don't know that that's true. But B, even if it did, that's you're saying the early church didn't believe X based on the surviving writings today. And that's not necessarily a good indication of what the church as a whole believed. It might be, but it's not necessarily that. And especially when you see um, the early church being all over the place, on various issues you shouldn't be talking so um boldly, yeah i guess amen. and that's yeah.
2: what, i'm glad you said that sean because that was something i wanted to briefly bring up myself too it's a blessing that we have these writings that do show the view existed but we're not promised that the orthodox writings of the early church will survive we're promised that scripture will will survive but we're not promised that those writings will survive especially when you recognize that we don't have the original manuscripts of these where are we getting this from mostly it's catholic and eastern orthodox monasteries from the middle ages and they're preserving mostly what they want to preserve they probably preserve these because of deference for the people uh that they're dealing with like athanasius and eusebius and mathetes was just so early on but even mathetes i don't think there's many uh surviving copies for him but we that's that's a very shallow ground of state to to uh uh put your faith on is do I see this view represented in the early church or not? Cause it might've been there and the medieval uh, monks might not wanted to copy it in the first place. <laughs> so got to yep, go to scriptures. Yep. That's what God actually gave to his church to decide truth. Amen.
0: Yep. Yep. And that just shows that, that men um, are going to be imperfect even in their, sometimes their interpretations of it. Yep. But we rest in that, that infallible authority of scripture. Um, So moving on to uh, point number two here, let me scroll down. So he he lays out these definitions. I'll give a little background here real quick. So he lays out, he calls it same term, different definitions. And he says, uh, in these last days, the devil is actively deceiving many who bear the name of Christ. One of the ways that he is doing this is by engaging in linguistic revision. He takes biblical words, redefines them makes them acceptable to visible Christianity, and then deceives people into believing this is orthodoxy. Here are just a few of the words he has redefined. So he'll lay out what a word is, it's what he thinks the definition is, and then what the devil allegedly changed it to. So um, we've already dealt with dead, both last week and at the beginning of the episode. Um, But Sean wanted to discuss uh, point number two.
1: Yeah, I think this is a, this is an important one. Um, I'll read it. Holiness slash obedience. It means that you are living in complete obedience to God, according to the knowledge slash understanding you have the things that you know to do you are doing and the things that you know, you shouldn't be doing, you aren't doing the devil redefines it to mean that you aren't perfect. You just aren't practicing sin. Of course, each person then gives whatever arbitrary definition they want to give to the word practice. Um, I think this is important because as you're going to see, he stakes your salvation on your holiness. If you are holy, we'll read that a couple, a couple, um, sections down. Um, but ultimately I, I don't even know what to say. Um, in a sense, um, yeah. I mean,
2: <laughs> like he says, every person gives whatever arbitrary definition they want to give to the word practice. I want to know what arbitrary definition he gives for complete obedience to God. Yeah, What does that actually look like to you? Where do you get that from scriptures? Um, If you say the wrong thing at a certain point and regret it later is, is that, um, are you still good at that point? Or is that, you know, that's not really sinful enough to really worry about, you know, like I will just kind of look over that one. Where do you get this idea of uh, what it looks like to be complete obedience to God and how are you confident that you've met it? Um, You can't be, it's just, it's, the only result of the system is is, is fear you, you yeah. can't know that therefore now there's no condemnation for you. yeah
1: um for an example i wanted to bring up james chapter three uh starting at verse two for in many things we offend all if any men offend not in word the same as the perfect man and also able to bridle the whole body um behold we put bits in horses mouths that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body behold also the ship's which, though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell for every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Here James is telling us no man has the ability to completely tame this. No man has the ability to completely um, set their course. Um, The tongue is able to destroy, and we unfortunately do. We are not necessarily going to be perfect in this life.
2: Mm -hmm. I'd also
1: like to uh, bring up 1 Corinthians 5. I won't walk through it necessarily, but here Paul is um, is, uh, telling the uh, Corinthians that they've sinned by allowing this man who has his father's wife um, in the congregation that he should have been put out. He should have been delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Um, And he says uh, that... He had already written unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators. So they know what the truth is and they've ignored it. Yet you read the letter and nowhere in there does Paul say that they weren't believers. In fact, he addresses them as a, as a church in, um, in the first, um, in the first chapter of his letter, ultimately, while believers do sin, that is not the basis of our justification. Um, the basis of our justification is Christ, which we receive by faith, not faithfulness. Faith.
2: Mm-hmm. The world of difference uh, between those two. Yeah. That um, reminds. I wanted to bring up real quick uh, to Second uh, Thessalonians, where um, he he he's even addressing people who won't acknowledge the words of this epistle as authoritatively, and he says to withdraw from them, but he calls them brothers. He says, "Count them not your enemy, but admonish them as brothers." So, if somebody who wasn't even acknowledging the authority of a book of the Bible, he still says, "Well, admonish them as as brothers." Then, if if that's not disobedience, then I don't know what is. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's he has an arbitrary mm-hmm. standard that he's giving.
1: We would we would ultimately say, just for the contrast there, because he I don't know if he's specifically referring to Calvinists there. But um, he does say that um, the devil has refined it to mean that you aren't perfect. You just aren't practicing sin. Um, that there is there is definitely an obvious person who, who cares not for the things of God mm-hmm. and is practicing sin. And therefore, we would be able to very clearly say that person is not a believer. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you say you believe in Jesus Christ. The one who believes in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he is God and worthy to be followed and that he knows what's best for you, then uh, you would expect The person to at least try to follow what he says, maybe not succeed, for we all do stumble in many ways, but um, we would expect there to at least be an attempt. The person who is not attempting to follow God, who does not care what God says, but says, I believe in Jesus, is a liar. He does not believe in Jesus or he doesn't understand what it means to believe in Jesus. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and that ties into point three here. I think they they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, Grace, number three, grace. It means the message of God and influence from God to get you to stop sinning and walk in holiness right now. The devil redefines it to mean that you can live whatever way you want, since you have gotten saved and that God is still okay with you. No one can obey God completely right now in this life. We always are sinners and need and always need to ask for forgiveness. So this ties into what you said before, um, and we would rebut that with 1 John. And what's interesting is um, Warren likes to go to 1 John. Uh, to prove some of his points um, but first John actually uh, can be helpful in the sense so first John 1 8 through 10 if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us uh, if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness if we say we have not sin we make him a liar and his word is not in us uh, John is talking to Christians and he's saying if you say we have no sin now as Christians uh you're not Christian that you you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Um, That's what he's making clear here. And going back to the idea of practicing uh, sin with what Warren was talking about, uh, in point two, the devil defines it, meaning we aren't perfect. You just aren't practicing sin. We get this definition based on how the scriptures talk about unbelievers. We have clear, uh, explicit teaching. uh, We've laid this out already. Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, Romans 1, that talk about, uh, Genesis 6, that talk about how the... Uh, unbeliever lives. So when we're talking about practicing sin, uh, we're not talking about sinless, uh, that the Christian can somehow um, live in sin and somehow claim the name of Christ. If he's practicing sin and continues in that, he'll evident himself to not be a Christian. Paul makes that very clear. Um, those who practice sin are of the devil, um, but that doesn't mean that there won't be frequent sin. We won't fall, uh, as John makes it very clear here in, in 1 John chapter 1. We do have sin but we have a means by which to deal with it. We can confess it and Christians repent and they continue on in their sanctification. They turn from sin throughout their life. They hate it, even though they still struggle with it. There is, as Martin Luther said, we are simultaneously saint and sinner. We still struggle with sin. We will have uh, sin with us until we die, but we will grow in progressive sanctification. We will grow in holiness. We will put to death the deeds of the flesh. This will be our normal way of living. So it's not an arbitrary view of practicing sin. It's based on what the scriptures talk about with regards to fallen man and what an unbeliever looks like um, and reconciling that with what the scripture says about our reality of uh, the reality of sin remaining in our lives. I think points two and three uh, kind of go together uh, with this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the final point we want to talk about is point number five. He talks about imputation. Um, now, early on, we read where he talked about uh, being considered righteous. He didn't really define what that meant uh, in terms of being considered righteous, uh, but we'll read point five here. Point five, imputation. It means that God considers someone as holy, as if they have never sinned because they have forsaken all their sins, repented, have trusted in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and are living holy. That's that's key here. And are living holy. He forgives you and doesn't hold your past sins against you, even though he still knows about them. The devil redefines it to mean that Christians can still sin all they like and that all God sees is Jesus. Perfect righteousness. God essentially is no longer omniscient since he is blinded by the blood of Jesus. And that is that's a that is a ridiculous argument. This does not imply some sort of lapse in God's memory because we're covered with the blood of Jesus Christ or recovered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What this means is our account is accredited as if we had never sinned. Our sin was imputed to Jesus Christ. This is what is known as the great exchange. Second Corinthians chapter five, he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. These are this language of imputation. This isn't that Jesus actually became sinful. He was accredited as sinful. Remember God is just, God does not put to death people who are innocent right? So Jesus had to be considered sinful. He wasn't actually sinful. We make a distinction between between infusion, which means that he would have actually, in his subjective nature, become sinful and his legal standing, that he was treated as sinful. But because our sin was imputed to Christ's account, God could justly punish him for our sin, and that punishment could be truly satisfied. Um, so this isn't some sort of blindness that god has or his lapse of knowledge um with regards to the blood of jesus that is not an exegetical theot. that is mm-hmm. just a i think that's just a hail mary uh, um i don't think there's yeah, yeah. there's no way you can back that up biblically. it's
1: just
2: rhetoric it's, it's just yeah. rhetoric but god actually yeah. god sees perfectly he sees your sin and he sees that it was atoned for yes it's no blindness there
0: exactly amen and you know we see this this Uh, view of imputation uh, in Romans. We read, uh, we alluded to Romans 3. Uh, We have uh, Romans 4 here as well. Uh, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath wherefore to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David Also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So, this covering of our sin by the blood of Christ is tied directly to the righteousness that is imputed to us in our state before God. And Paul appeals to the Old Testament. He goes back to Abraham, the great father of the Jews, right? Hey, and he makes it very clear that he believed in Christ by faith. He believed in God by faith uh, before he was circumcised. So there was no claim to circumcision contributing to his salvation. But this faith is the means by which um, our that righteousness comes to us, that imputed righteousness that we are accredited as. That's imputation, biblically speaking. Uh-huh. And that is our only hope uh, in terms of our legal standing before God, the blood of Christ, uh, Christ's death, and that imputed righteousness. That's the... The only way God is going to see us is righteous in his sight. Amen.
2: And Romans 4 completely smacks in the face of his definition of grace. He says it's the message of God and influence for God, God, to get you to stop sinning and walk in holiness right now. In other words, grace is works for him. Grace is uh just so you can be holy. And that is a gracious thing that God changes your nature to do that. But that's uh that's the result of grace. That isn't that isn't uh grace. Paul contrasts the two. Says, "Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt." So if you define grace as to just be you not sinning, essentially, you're you're uh, you're completely flipping it. He's he's contrasting working and not working. It will lead right. to works, but the grace is uh, received through faith uh, passively, not an active, continual outworking that merits your favor before God
0: exactly exactly
1: so and, before yeah go ahead go ahead, John. so ultimately um this leads into what he thinks justification is because as i was as i was going through this i was thinking to myself so how does he actually define justification if he believes this that we're imputed as holy if we're considered holy in part because we are holy because we're living holy what does he thinks going on with justification? So I, I was, and then I was like, I don't think I even read the word justification at all in this doctrinal statement. So I did a control find, and the word justification does not appear. I'm sure he has some sort of definition for the word justification, but in a biblical sense, he has no no justification. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're if the basis of God considering you was holy is yourself, at least in part, um, that you're living holy right now then it's not an imputed righteousness. It's, it's, it's me. I, 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 at least part of my right standing with God is based on me. And that's ultimately why we say that he's under the condemnations of Gal- condemnation of Galatians 1. Because those, um, the uh, Judaizers of Galatia, were trying to be right with God by also keeping the law. Mm-hmm. The uh, They were trying to have people circumcised Saying you, you weren't right with God Unless you were circumcised And Paul says no We're, we're justified purely by faith If uh, righteousness Comes to us If we're justified If we're made right with God In any other way That's on, based on our works At least in some sense um, Warren wouldn't deny necessarily That faith is a component He says that you have to trust In Jesus' sacrifice but also that you are living holy. And that's 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 underneath that condemnation. It is not on our merit. Um, as Paul says in Philippians 3, he counts whatever righteousness he had as rubbish because mm-hmm. it wasn't worth anything. He was seeking an alien righteousness. And that's what we want. I want the perfect righteousness of Christ and my righteousness, whatever it might be, will not contribute to that in any way. God is not looking at that and saying like, okay, that makes up, the little bit of justification you are missing. No, no, no. It's purely on Christ, and I receive that by faith.
2: Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Galatians five, four. It's a fearful thing to fall yeah. in the hands of a living God. If Warren, if you're listening, I I implore you to repent of your sins. You You will not stand before the throne of God and say, I deserve to be here because I'm good enough. I've lived holy enough. If you're leaning on your righteousness to save you in that day, you will die in your sins and face the terror of the second death. But you can have forgiveness. You can have forgiveness in Christ now by stopping from leaning on your own righteousness and start leaning on him. For his righteousness covers all iniquities. His death was sufficient for all of the sin of anybody who comes to him it was of infinite worth. And in that finite period of time, he was able to satisfy
0: the infinite
2: weight of the sin that was committed against
0: him. Amen. Amen. And that's really the gospel. that That is the gospel. And uh, that's where we see Warren. He, he does not believe what we believe with regards to Romans 4, with regards to imputation or or uh, biblical view of justification. He just doesn't. He just doesn't and, and because of that uh, he is under the wrath of God and that's why we call him to repent we care for your soul Warren we're not here to bash you for the sake of bashing you we care for your soul and we want to highlight these things as uh, part of telling you what the true gospel is and we call you to repent and those who believe in what he believes uh, to repent and put your faith in the true Christ by faith alone by faith alone um, and real quick before we close um, I just want to point something out provisionist perspective said something here uh, they said, what is he adding? And this is this is talk about uh, the gospel. Uh, the particular Baptist is adding things like exhaustive no, divine no, no, no. foreknowledge, PSA, et cetera. We're well, not, and I think by PSA, you're probably talking about. You're now, if you're saying that's adding to the gospel, uh, you don't understand the gospel, it would appear. Uh, and we don't add exhaustive divine foreknowledge to no, no uh, a no. qualification for the gospel. No. Uh, no, I'm no, not no. one of those people who say that Calvinism. Is the gospel? I don't. I don't believe that. I think that people who are not Calvinists um, can believe in the true gospel, uh, depending on where you're coming from. Uh, but penal substitutionary atonement, as we've discussed today, is very clearly critical to the gospel. And if you do deny it, you are not a Christian. We're just yes. going to flat out say it. Yeah. Um So we're it's not adding to the gospel. The we're just simply teaching says. it
2: it's the first thing yeah. paul says when he defines the, the gospel christ died for our sin and as we've shown from scriptures that's what he meant by it he didn't mean by some indirect way you can't just hold to the words somehow and say you're good you actually had to believe what he was talking about there and that is penal substitutionary atonement we're not adding to the gospel that's part of what paul places as a, a central aspect of the gospel mm-hmm. provisionist perspective I, I don't know if you don't believe it or just saying that well, i don't think it's technically part of the gospel But in either case you need to repent you need
0: to repent. You are on, on, on dangerous territory right now. And this is the danger of playing with these guys like Warren, you know, you're promoting him. You're rubbing elbows with him. Um, uh, his teaching can rub off on you if you're not careful. Uh, so be very careful guys as, as you deal with them. Um, one, uh, and we'll go ahead and close here in a second. I know we'd be going for quite a while. Um, but, uh, we thank you for, for joining us today. I know this has been a long episode, but in order for us to discuss these things, uh, rightfully, we have to go in great detail. Um, So we hope it's been beneficial and and been helpful. Next week, we will have a special guest on. Richard Barcellus will be joining us next week, Lord willing, um, to discuss his new book on the Trinity Trinity and creation. So we look forward to that. Um, But we thank you for joining us, and we pray you have a great weekend and a great Lord's Day tomorrow.
1: God bless. God bless.